When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Palmerbet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight-up screamer! Download our app today and enjoy straight-up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same-game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. This is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives. Here's your host, Peter Donegan. It's that time of the week again. Great to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We celebrate the life of a man who is in one of the most exclusive clubs in football. He's a Brownlow medalist. He was a champion in the red, white and blue. And he's achieved so much in the game. We may not be able to fit it all in over the next hour. His name is John Schultz and he joins us on the line. John, it's great to talk to you. Thanks, Peter. And thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. First things first, how are you keeping? Well, I'm surprisingly well, given my age. Um, talking to Don Scott one day, I said, how old are you, Don? And he, he just about blew my head off. He said, age does not matter. It's just how you feel. <laughs> uh, that's good. Well, I won't mention the fact that you're 81, but you sound nice and sprightly, John. Uh, and that, yeah. does, that does sound very much like Scotty. He's a, an interesting character, Don Scott, isn't he? certainly is. He's a, he's, a, he's a very nice person. Um, my first contact with him was when he and Peter Crimmins were, were both Ruck and Rover combination. They just started. It was their first year and it must have been a testimonial for someone. Um, and I was there and we were in the wings waiting to, to go on and, and they were quizzing me. They were saying, now, what do you do in this situation? What do you do in that situation? You know, which, which you rover, what do you do? And I thought that uh, was a good start because they were very keen and they were a good combination. They were a brilliant combination. A sad story in the end, of course, for Peter Crimmins, but a legendary figure, both of them in the history of their football club. And you are at the Western Bulldogs. I have to ask you, that day, going back a few years ago, the day that everybody who bleeds red, white and blue remembers, you were there. What are your memories of that day? We're talking uh, 16. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I I played in the grand final in '61, day for me, but um, in 2016 that was a fairy tale come true. That whole year, I'd been fortunate to be invited to join the playing group in um, 2015, and so I'd been around for a little while, and um, just I, I was able to travel with the team that day. So I went to the west, I went to to Sydney, and every every time we had to play the obstacle was there and we were, the players were able to climb over and get to the other side and then there was a, another battle the following week but it was a very exciting year and uh, as you can envisage for, for a club that hadn't won a premiership for so long 
it was it was a wonderful achievement and, and everyone was euphoric. It was tremendous. And, of course, being there in the thick of the action when the Premiership Cup was actually handed over must have been a great honour for you. Yes, it certainly was. And um, Peter Bedford was the uh, Sydney Swans uh, person that was going to present a given that the Sydney... Sydney um, got one on the day, but Peter and I are good friends. We played against each other when he was with South Melbourne, and we played state football together. So it was uh, very good for me, but sad for Peter. He holds a unique place in your club, the Brownlow Club, John. Uh, Peter Bedford was the first man whose Brownlow medal was actually televised. So um, in the days when you won it, we'll talk a bit more about that later on, but in the yeah. days where you won it, it was a bit of Bush Telegraph stuff going around to find out whether he had won or not. It certainly was. Well, Freddie Goldsmith, uh, I think he was at work on that, on yes. that night and, um, and he was advised by his workmates that he'd, uh, that he'd won it. Can I go back to that series in 2016? And you spoke about spoke about travelling with the team. The one thing I remember, I was in Perth calling that game when they played the West Coast Eagles in the first week of the finals, and everybody was counting their chickens over there. By the time they got over there and the match was about to start, everyone in West Coast colours and in the West was talking about who they were going to play next week and what they were going to do, because in their eyes it was a foregone conclusion, but the Bulldogs had other ideas. It's a fatal way to think uh, to, to, to think beyond the, the next game because mm. I can remember it happening in um, in 1961. We 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 had to play Melbourne, who'd just been beaten by Hawthorne, and uh, it was John Lord actually that, that in being interviewed on uh, television said they said well what about Footscray? You know he was talking about playing Hawthorne the following week, the week after, and he said they said well what about Footscray? He said ah oh, no don't worry about Footscray. Well. That gave put fire in our belly, and uh, we went out uh, really charged and, uh, and and won the game convincingly. And the same thing happened in Perth. Did you believe at the time that the dream was possible, John, or did you think that someone was going to wake you up and this this all could not keep on going? This fairy tale could not continue. Well, I think I'm a. I believe that I'm a positive person. And um, it's never you've always you're always in with a chance, and uh, uh, and I I was thinking positively, and I reckon that we could keep on going given the way things were unfolding. And of course, you mentioned 1961, so that was uh, memories of a long time ago, and there would have been people who were around the club at that time who were still around the club in 2016. The whole experience of doing what the team did meant so much to so many people. And a lot of people said, well, I, I can die happy now. And I'm sure a lot of those people spoke to you before and after the game. Yes, and, and talking about dying happy, there were a lot of people that didn't quite make it, but their family were saying, well, you know, they'd have been watching from up there and they'd be ecstatic about the result. Talking about the people that were deceased that had followed the, the Bulldogs for so long and given so much uh, their support to the club, and um, it, it, it was uh, it was a wonderful occasion. And there were a lot of tears around at the time on the day. I, mm. I can, can remember going out onto the ground, and there were a lot of people who were actually crying. And, and from my perspective, I, I couldn't have been happier. I, you know, I, I think I had a smile on my face just looking at some of the the replays, and and uh, I was in uh, in heaven. When did you think you had it, John? During that last quarter, was it Tom Boyd's goal? Did that convince you? 
way it unfolded, I was act- actually I sat in the coach's box, and, and that way, at the at the G, that's way up in the gods, about a hundred steps to get up there, and uh, so I was in the coach's box, and I knew that the the AFL person would come and get me, when, you know, when it was getting towards the end of the game, and take me down and advise me as to what was to happen, and um, so I was coming down steps that those hundred steps. He was a bit late getting to to me because he, he got got lost, and I was um, coming down the steps with him, very close to the end of the game. So I actually missed the last of it, and I can remember getting to the bottom step. And and as I got to the bottom step, uh, Luke Beveridge came out of the lift, the security lift, and and, and I said to him, "Look, are we going to win? Have we won?" And he, and he said, "No, we haven't won yet, but we will." And uh, and then I hit the ground and and, and just. Uh, saw the last of it, so it was fantastic. And all of those memorable moments, but we talked about you being on the dais, and when Bob Murphy came up, it was a moment in footy folklore. You had a pretty close relationship with Bob, didn't you? You, you were often in contact with him about games. Uh, tell us a bit about that. When Bob was first um, brought to the club, when he was um, recruited, we had about six players at that were recruited in, in that particular year. I think from memory it was about the year 2000. And um, Bob was one of them and there were six others. And I reckon there was um, Mitch Hahn, Gian Syracuse, who became a lifelong friend of Bob's. And, and they all went on to play 200 games with the club. And I was invited, well, asked if I'd speak to them sort of at an induction so that was my first contact. Lindsay Gilby was another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the um, it was the time when I first came in contact with Bob, and we'd we'd sort of had a good rapport and, and a good relationship since then. When you're talking to players when they first arrive at the club, you sort of have an affinity with them and uh, and, and a friendship that you, you take an interest in how they they perform. Anyone who knows the man knows that he's a very solid citizen as well as being a great footballer. What impressed you about the young Bob Murphy that made you such firm friends throughout his career? Bob is a, is, is a, is a unique person. I, you'd have to go a long way to find someone that would replicate how he is. He, he thinks beyond the square. He's very genuine in everything that he does. He, he, he talks when he's talking to you. He's really looking at you and, and making good comments. Uh, he's got a, a wonderful family life. I, I took great delight in reading his uh, columns in the Age and also reading the book that he compiled from those columns. But uh, I think anyone that, that read those would read those um, columns that he had written written in the Age would would appreciate just what sort of a person he is. Were you at Marvel Stadium that day, John, or whatever it was called? It might have been Eddie Had Stadium at that stage when his knee buckled. I think it was against Hawthorne. I was calling that day. And even for those of us who were uh, outside the football club, we felt this great sense of sadness that we might have seen the end. What are your recollections of that day? Were you there? I was. And um, it, it happened fairly late in the game yeah. too. And, um, and there wasn't much... And, and, you, I always am terrified in a way that whenever I see, it doesn't matter what player it is, when I see them go down with a knee, because it's such a horrific injury to have and it's so so hard to get back from this, so much work. And, and you, you think of those players that have not only just had one knee, but have had two and three. 
and uh, they know as soon as they do it, they know just the recovery that's required and how long it's going to take them to get back onto the field again. So uh, I was devastated. Um, Did you have much knee trouble in your career? I had one knee, and uh, and that uh, that um, was the reason that I gave to retire. I, it was time I retired anyway, but. Um, I, uh, I'd, I'd had 169 games straight without without missing a game, and I went down with this knee. Uh, it was just it was a cartilage operation. Uh, in those days, it was a lot more severe than it is today. Where you know, if I'd if I'd had the same thing today, I'd have been back in about a fortnight, I'd reckon. But in those days, I had to open up the whole knee and take it apart and clean it up and snip it up and put it back together again. So. Uh, um, that was the only, that was the, probably the major major injury that I had in my career. So how's your body post football? Because a lot of people suffer the effects of what is a brutal game, and it's a very physical game. Do you carry any scars, if you like, or any afflictions from your time in the game? I do, um, but having said that, I wouldn't wouldn't give up a moment of, of the no. time that I had in the game. I enjoyed every moment of it, and the, and the people that I met along the way, but. Um, Talking about me now, you know, you've mentioned my age, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm still able to. I, I, at the moment, I'm playing tennis. Uh, I play tennis twice a week, and I've just I've just come in from playing 18 holes of golf today. Wow! Um, so I'm 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 lucky that I, my body's holding up pretty well. Where do you play, John? When you chase the little white ball around? Uh, I've got a friend who who has a tennis court and he has two groups, a Friday group and a Sunday group. And at the moment we're, um, we're running a bit short. It's that time of the year when people go away. And uh, so rather than just being the Friday player, I'm now a Friday and a Sunday player because we're a bit short. But um, we really enjoy it. It's a good, good, great game, tennis. And I've played since I was, you know, 12. So... Uh, and if we're at that stage where we don't want to give it away because we know that once we stop, that'll be it. We won't ever play it again. Just before we take our first break, John, we're talking about the modern game and the Bulldogs winning the Premiership. Do you like football as it is at the moment? Are, they, are we tinkering too much with it? Do we need to leave the game alone? Where do you think it stands? I suppose you've got to keep thinking about what you can do to improve the game. But as far as I'm concerned, it, it, it's a great game. And, and I think what makes it, really good is the skill of the players and, and, and the their ability to perform. That's what I really like watching when a player does something really brilliant. And uh, But I think it evolves anyway. Um, you, you bring in a... I think I, I'm happy with the 6-6-6 rule. Um, and I can remember talking to Alan Jeans years ago and he used to you'd be sitting at the table with him at a, a pre-match function and he'd have the serviette out and he'd be drawing lines and and, and uh, giving his interpretation of what he thinks should happen to improve the game. And, and way back, probably 20 years ago, he was talking about something like the 666. And uh, so I think the people that really think about it feel that there is a need to to change things, but I wouldn't like to tinker with it too much at... Um, we can talk about, you know, I can tell you a few of the things that used to happen and what happens now, and um, there was definitely a need for change in that regard. 
Well, why don't we do that on the other side of the break? We'll go from the modern day game to where it all began for you. John Schultz is my guest, the Brownlow medalist of 1960. And there's plenty more still to come with John on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Only one bad one on the ground as the throwing comes in. Short's in the right position. He gets a tap over his head. Good play by Short. He can't find a rover. Whitten's there, number three, comes through. Gets his boot to it. Kicks it back into the pack. Popping with Sudholz now playing in the ruck. Busy's at full forward. Man at the back of Short's. Two bites at the cherry. And that's all he needs. One's generally enough, and that's John Short's. Herculean ruckman. That's a good kick down towards his half forward. Almost in their goal square. Schultz fighting desperately to get the ball out of the air. McGowan comes out, he got a whack in the back for his tub or two. Hines heading himself, look at that one. He looks like a younger edition of John Schultz, doesn't he? If he's half as good as him, Fusco will be happy. Well, Schultz, for mine, is one of the best ruckmen. We turn back the sands of time and some of the old commentary with my guest today, John Schultz, on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives. Tobin Brothers, a family-owned business since 1934. Uh, John, that might have brought back some memories. I think that would have been the voice of the great Jeff Leake, who did a lot of commentary on the ABC for many years. He did. I actually played against Jeff uh, when I started in '58. He was the, the main ruckman for Essen, a very a great ruckman and also a fine fellow. And as it turns out, there was a guy called Busy who was mentioned there. And you have Neil a, Busy. Yeah. Yes, you have a bit of a, a link with uh, Neil Busy over the years because not only playing against him, but you both finished up on the tribunal at one stage, I think. That's correct. He chaired the tribunal for a number of years. Yes, and uh, a fine chairman he was too. And I heard the name Sudholtz there. I remember as a kid, John Sudholtz, he used to play for South Melbourne. I think he played at full correct. forward mm-hmm. for a while there, John. I think he was number 20. So it's amazing how your memory takes you back to those formative years. Yes, well, um, my concern, given my age and, and what you're going to ask me, to go back in years as to whether there'll be enough people alive uh, or that would remember those days because it was a long time ago, but we'll, we'll see what we can do. I think I'm right in saying about your hometown, Bort. It was a big harness racing area for a long time, wasn't it? There, were, there was uh, the Bort harness racing track, and I think there were a lot of harness racing people up in that part of the world. That's exactly right. It, 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 um, it, and uh, Neil Busy, I think, was sort of uh, involved in, in harness racing as far as bringing about a, a rationalisation of harness racing at yes. one stage, and uh, and he was involved in that. But I can remember um, we had a stables down the back of our place where we lived in Bort, and, and it was ideal for this fellow because... He was only 300 metres from the from the track. You know, it was a nice, from my recollection of it, it was a, a good trotting track. And um, he just had, he could just lead the horses down there and, and, and train them. It was good. So you make the transition from Bort to the Big Smoke and you go to Footscray at the Western Oval as it was then. Who was the first person to recognise your talent and the fact that this big, raw, gangly fellow might make a pretty good ruckman at some stage? Well, I think I mentioned Ern Edwards, who was who was the recruiting man for the Bulldogs, and he came up actually to see a, a rover, I think, in Narraport, Mansell Giddings from memory, uh, because 
Footscray were needing some rovers. And um, so he came up and uh, in those days farming was booming and, and a farmer couldn't afford to send his son down to Melbourne to play football for £8 a week because wheat was booming, wool was booming. So he spoke to Mansell Giddings and Mansell said, no, I, I can't afford to come down. So he came back to Charlton, which is where we were playing, thought we were playing Charlton. And uh, he, he just looked over the fence, as you do, and said, Any, anyone worth looking at here to one of the locals? And he said, oh, that, that blonde-headed kid's going pretty well. And uh, so after the game, he came and spoke to me and just introduced himself and then invited me. At the end of the season, they invited me down to that game at South Melbourne. And um, and uh, he, he really looked after me and be, um, because uh, he, he gave me a, an easy ride in. He... When I played in the practice game, he he was saying, well, I want him to be in the first ruck and I want him to be with Don Ross in the centre because Don was a great centre man, a good, a good man to have around. So I played in that practice game and at half-time they sent me, they took me off the ground because I'd been performing fairly well and they I hadn't signed with them at that stage and um, they were a bit concerned that other teams might get get to hear about the game. So... I went back home and uh, they came up the next week and I signed up with with Footscray. Charlie Sutton was around the place at the time. EJ, I guess, was there. There are a couple of legendary figures amongst the footy club. Yeah, well, I, I had met Charlie, but unfortunately, in, in a way, um, Charlie was lost his position in 1957, halfway through the season, if you recall that. And um, and Ted was appointed as captain captain coach in, in Charlie's stead and this caused a few um, rankles with the with the existing players because Ted was a, one of the youngest players and to have him take the place of Charlie Sutton who was actually to the players and then the supporters he was God Charlie was God mm. and um, it, it, it was very a big upheaval for the club when when Charlie lost his position and it was a, a big thing for Ted. Ted did confer with Charlie you know, because Charlie was like the father figure to all these fellas. He did confer with Charlie before he took on the position because he was concerned at, at what had happened. And Charlie said to him, well, look, no, Ted, you've got to do it. If you don't take it, uh, I'll get someone from outside the club and I'd prefer you know, you to have it than someone else. So um, Ted took on the role and... Um, you can envisage he wasn't very old at the time and and to be a captain coach at a young age with a lot of older players that were older than him was was put a bit of pressure on him and uh, we had a very young side recruited that year I think they they could see that there was a transition happening and I was one of the ones that came in and those fellows that I was mentioning the still firm friends they came in as well and we we did moulded a team together that was able to be just an also-ran team to, to a side that played off in the grand final in 1961. And uh, if you can remember, or you won't remember, but uh, the, the flick pass was the thing. It was yes. initiated by Len Smith, a Fitzroy coach. And uh, and we, Ted, adopted. He thought it would be good. And the, the beauty of the flick pass was that everyone that got the ball was looking to handball it off, pass it off. And in, in so doing, the players, all the players knew they had to be on the move to accept that, that hand pass. So it meant that we were pretty quick and we weren't physically strong, but uh, we were able to 
to uh, match it and get through to play Kennedy's Commandos in the um, in the 1961 Grand Final. That uh, we're a bit unlucky. Well, not unlucky because Kennedy and the boys had worked particularly hard to get themselves super fit. On the day, it was over 100 degrees, and which was you know in the 30s. And uh, we were going, we were with them at half time, but it, um, we were fading. The, the selectors were looking around and um, and thinking, oh gosh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Because you could see that every, everyone was pretty well uh, had on their feet. It was a strange thing in those days, and this is one of the things that we we've learned so much. But in those days, you you dehydrated. You you didn't hydrate. You dehydrated because you thought if you had too much water or you'd, you'd get cramped mm. but so it was exactly the reverse of what we needed was to be hydrated and Brendan Edwards had been starring in the centre and uh, the selectors got together at half time and, um, and they said oh we've got to stop Brendan Edwards someone's got to stop him and Ted looked around all the our whole side was just pretty well in a way kids um, all very young and Ted thought oh okay so he thought he'd, he'd take on the on the role of trying to to stop Brendan, so at, at his first opportunity, he uh, fairly he ran right through Brendan and, and and he's knocked him to the ground and Ted's getting himself up off the ground and dusting himself down, thinking, well, I've done my job. And uh, one of our players, Ian Bryan, said, "Hey, Ted, he's getting up." <laughs> and not only did he. Not only did he get up, but he continued to be probably the best on the ground, I would say, on the day. Can I just take you back to the week of the grand final, John? Um, it's so very different, I guess, to today because we've got the parade and we've got all of the other things that go on in grand final week. What was it like back there in 1961? What was the build-up like to that game? Um, you know, it's hard explain just the difference between then and now um, you've got to realize that I most players had a job football was in a way secondary to their job mm. now in my situation I, I was in business in the family business at, at that, that time and what would happen is uh, Elaine my wife would cut me sandwiches I'd have a big breakfast and then she'd cut me sandwiches I'd go off to work and in the trip from, say, Mount Waverley out to, to Fiji or wherever we were playing, I would eat, be eating the sandwiches in the car, and that was my lunch. And as, as well as that, she used to prepare me a bonox, and, and in that in that bonox, uh, I used to put cream, cream sherry, the cream sherry being sort of a natural... Um, uh, product that would would make me uh, give me a bit of a lift so at three quarter time even on a really on, particularly on a really cold day my my trainer that rubbed me down was Dolly Aked and Dolly would come out at three quarter time with the thermos it was nice and hot and I'd, I'd uh, drink this Bonox and Sherry down and it would just give me a bit of a lift for the last quarter and but the fact that you you're having your lunch on the way out to the ground what I'd do is when I got to the ground, I'd come in, I'd go out and have a look at the ground and see what the situation was as far as the wind and the, the, the surface and all those sorts of things. And um, and then I'd go in and have a rub. And uh, 
and then by the time I'd had my rub, I said would be ready to talk to us in the in the pre-match address. Well, now we've learnt something because over the years, John, we've heard about players sneaking a quick cigarette at various times in the rooms at halftime. We've heard about players having the form guide down their socks so that they could find out the race results. And now we know you could even have a little tipple and play the game. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think it was against the rules to do that. <laughs> well, it, it's... Uh, I didn't ever inquire anyway. No, it's... It, 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 uh, it's um, surprising just even... Um, Mentally, how how you have something that you think is working, you keep on doing it, don't you? Yes, you do. And even if it was against the rules, John, I reckon we've got past the statute of limitations. So I think your admission there, <laughs> I think you should be okay. We're going to take okay, a break. Thanks, Peter. When we come back, I want to talk about the Brownlow, that exclusive club and 1960, where it was a great contest between yourself and an eventual Brownlow medalist in Kevin Murray. We'll talk about that on the other side of the break. Uh, plenty more still to come on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. A lot more with John Schultz coming up after the break as Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrate lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Great to have you with us and it's great to have the great John Schultz with us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Tobin Brothers, a family-owned business since 19. 19- 34. John, you spoke about that grand final. Just one thing on that. When you make a grand final, I suppose the natural inclination is that it's going to keep on happening to you and you'll be able to experience the atmosphere again and again and again, but it doesn't quite work out that way in footy. No, it it definitely doesn't. I I don't know that uh, you hope that it will happen again, um, but you can't expect that it will happen again. There's There's so many, particularly today, there's so many if buts and maybes with you've got so many teams playing and and they're all improving just the way they recruit and and, and that sort of thing means enhances their performance if they recruit well and just little upsets injuries anything like that and uh, your whole your whole life can turn upside down a year before the grand final you joined that exclusive club that we've spoken about at 21 years of age you became a brownlow medalist tell us about that night we spoke about fred goldsmith and how he learned about it how did you find out that you were the brownlow medalist what was the night like well um, there wasn't on television uh, there wasn't live television where they could come around with the car and and come to your home um, on that night, I was at my parents' place. I, I wasn't married. My fiance was uh, at, at the house as well, Elaine uh, Graham, as she was in those days. And we had Lou Richards and Jack Dyer in in the in the home. They were, uh, I think, they were three dB, and they had the roving radio car. And um, I can remember my mother saying to Jack um, when he came, when he came in, "Oh, would you like a cup of tea?" Well. Jack started spluttering and he nearly fell over because Jack didn't mind a, a beer. But I don't think he'd ever drunk tea, a cup of tea in his life. So um, that uh, that was a, that was a start. And, and what would have happened if um, if I'd fallen by the wayside? Um, they'd have been off like a shot and gone to the the, the next in the reckoning. And, and as you mentioned, uh, Kevin Murray was. Uh, we are very good friends. Um, he was in in the running at the time, and and whilst I wasn't 
disappointed that I won it. I was, for his sake, I was, I was sorry, but I was very pleased down the track that uh, when he when he won the medal. And I think I'm right in saying, John, that the presentation of the medal used to happen before one of the early finals, did it not? Was that the case with you in 1960? That's right, yes. Um, Collingwood would have been playing Essendon because I can remember the photo I've got. I think it was uh, Murray Wiedemann and Jack Clark Essendon. And uh, I think it was the, the governor made the presentation on the ground before the game. So we're sort of standing on a dais. I've got a photo of, of standing on the dais with uh, Murray Wiedemann and, and Jack Clark uh, beside us and the, and the governor making the presentation. Where's the medal now, John? The medal now, um, you remember years ago, uh, one was sold mm. and, um, and and got a lot of money, and uh, which and at the time, it, it was the money raised was for a very good cause, in as much as it was for the education of, of the players' children, and I can't think of a better way to to spend the money that you receive from your medal. Than, than in that in that way. Mine, when one of my daughters heard that um, the, the amount of money that the, the medal had achieved in in the auction, she said, "Where's yours?" And I just told her where it was. And um, and she said, "Look, Dad, you've got to put it in the bank. You've got to put it in the bank." So for a while there, I put it in the bank, but it, it, it doesn't work in the bank because it's surprising whenever you have a kid come in and, and talk to you about it. It's nice to be able to give them the medal to have a have a look at and uh, and put it around their neck and have their photo taken. And there were times when I would send the the medal off to a school and it, everyone in the school would be able to have a look at it and pass it on and that sort of thing. So whilst it was a bit of a shame that it actually a value a monetary value was put on it because it sort of inhibited the the, um, the fact that you could let a lot of people look at it. And what a great achievement and what it did for the next 60 years was enable you to rub shoulders with the other Brownlow medalists to catch up at the medal itself or at various functions. You, I'm sure you must be very privileged to be able to rub shoulders with the likes of some of the great players who've won the medal over the years and and be numbered amongst their ranks. It is, and, and um, I, 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 since it's been televised, I... I I haven't um, haven't missed a Brownlow function, and and it, it's just as you said, it's it's like a reunion. Mm. You uh, we get a table together, and I think just recently there was Bobby Skilton um, and uh, Alistair Lord, uh, Kevin Kevin Murray, um, and you know we we can all just get around, and there are, there are, the Brownlow medalists are other tables that are adjoining, so we can all get together and uh, share share experiences and we've all become firm friends because it's a long time ago that from uh, 1960 to now so you meet a lot of people along the way. Can I take you back even a little bit before that? We spoke about the start of your career. When I have great champions of the game on this program John, I often ask them about their first game and what they remember of their first game but you might be excused for not remembering too much about your first game. Yes, that's right. I... um I probably had a bit of publicity prior to the game and uh, we were playing Collingwood at Footscray and I was in the first, I would say in the first 60 seconds of the game, the ball came down to the forward pocket 
where I was playing, and uh, I ran in to get the ball and uh, and was was knocked out actually. I I, I lost my two front teeth and um, and uh, I can still remember the the coming to with the smelling salts. They put the smelling salts on them, and, and you wouldn't stay a, unconscious if you had some smelling salts <laughs> on you. <laughs> And you know, so I woke up and and I can still remember the trainer saying, "Oh, take him off, take him off." And and then and Tomlinson, who was our head trainer, said, "No, no, no, leave him on, leave him on." And um, so he did leave me on, and, and and it was a good thing in a way, like I was concussed, but um, it it uh, it meant that I could continue playing, and I did I did continue playing fairly well, as I recall, on the day, but it. it it put me into the spotlight. If, if you can understand, or you can, you can uh, if you looked at all the papers on the Monday, there, here's me spread out on the ground, out cold, and uh, and uh, there were big, big um, headlines about it. So it sort of put me into the spotlight, and I think that that was probably one of the reasons that in my first year in 1958, I was I was selected in the um, in the Victorian side. And uh, it was a carnival in Melbourne, so for me that was a, a momentous occasion, and I think it probably was enhanced by the fact that the selectors took notice of me because I was knocked out in the first game. Mm, and you went on to wear that famous Big V twenty-four times. You were on the receiving end there, John, but you you weren't the giver of that sort of attention too often because that was one thing that everybody said about you that you were a scrupulously fair player. Did you wear that label with a lot of pride? Oh, I don't think it's... Um, I don't think it's something... You know, it's nice to be like that, but I don't think you could say that you wear it with pride. It's it's one of those things that actually happened, but when you play football, there are times when you play football and it's not so much what people do to you. You get caught if you retaliate in a lot of instances. But from my perspective, it's not if you're retaliating for something that's happened to you. Where you get caught is if you uh, see a player you're in your team have something untoward done to him. You feel you've got to fly the flag and do something to to uphold, you know, to to show that that's not that's not on. You can't do that to my teammate. Well, you in those days, having said that, in those days there was a one umpire, and uh, the umpires, all they were concerned about was keeping control. And if you did something untoward, you know, it might be in, in retaliation for something you've seen a, your teammate receive, the, the umpire would, would, and this has happened, but the umpire would say, hey, okay, you've got back at him, now get on with the game. Mm. And in, in in today's, you know, it might have been a reportable incident, you know, but um, in those days, the umpires used their discretion and they, they knew what was going on. The game has certainly changed a lot over the years. We're just about out of time, John, but we're going to take our final break and then I'll come back with some more thoughts, including a little bit on your time at the Tribunal. It's been a pleasure to have John Schultz with us and we've still got plenty more to come on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Our final segment with John Schultz coming up after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Our final segment with the Brownlow medalist of 1960, John Schultz, on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. John, I alluded to the fact that the game has changed dramatically from when you were playing compared to now. Would you have a story that might illustrate the dramatic changes in the game that happened to you? In, in this day and age, you've got the interchange, so players can run on and they can run off. But when I was playing, if you were injured and you came off the ground, you couldn't come back on again. And um, and this was a bit inhibiting for, for people coming off the ground. They knew sometimes you'd shove them in the forward pocket and, and they'd rest there. But on this particular occasion, I'd, I'd gone to the ground. At, we're in the, playing at the MCG against Richmond. And the late Fred Swift jumped across the top of the pack that had gone to the ground. And as he went across my head, his stops, which were the leather stops with mm. um, protruding nails, he went across the top of my head and he slit my head open right across the top. And there's blood going everywhere. And the, and the Richmond doctor came out and he said, Oh, John, you're bleeding badly. Do you think I should look? Would you like me to look at that? And I said, Yes, thanks, Doc. You have a. So he had a look and he said, oh, gee, it needs stitching. Uh, would you mind if I stitch it up? And I, and he, and I said, no. And he, and he said, okay, we'll just wait a minute. And he, he went back and he got his bag and uh, he came back out onto the ground. The game's still going on and I'm, I'm just in the forward flank area. And uh, he said, oh, this might hurt, might hurt. So he brought out a little flask of brandy and, um, <laughs> and, and gave me a swig of the brandy. And, and, and I was a teetotaler at that time, so it, it dead in the pain that's for sure but then here I am I'm sitting down on the ground at the MCG here's the, the Richmond doctor over the top of me with his uh, stitching up my head he probably put about 10 stitches in the top of my head and um, and then he said oh okay I think you're right now and so off you go so being a, a teetotaler I, um, I, uh, I jumped up and and as I was running across the ground, I was a bit like the Cracker Brothers when they used to run. They used to glide across the top of the ground. Yes. Well, that was how I was after having this swig of brandy. <laughs> well, we've learned a lot about you today, John, because you may very well be the only footballer in the history of the game who has not only consumed sherry but brandy during a match. <laughs> yes. It was good brandy, too. I must say the Richmond do it well. Uh, you're still a teetotaler to this day, or do you like a bit of a tipple now? No, I, 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 uh, I'm definitely not a teetotaler now. Okay, well, that's good to hear. Um, it set the standard all those years ago with the sherry and the brandy. I wanted to briefly touch on your time at the tribunal. We talked about it early in the show. What was the most fanciful story that you can recall at the tribunal? Because it was well known that players used to develop amnesia when they sat in front of you and your uh, compatriots. Well, having been a player, you, you knew what the antics that players got onto when they were before the tribunal. But the one uh, that sort of stands out, I think, is, is that 1974, there was a big melee between Essendon and Richmond uh, at half time. Just prior to half time, Mel Brown and Graham Jerker Jenkin um, had a little bit of a an altercation just just before the siren went, and I, I think it was there was nothing serious in it. They were just fooling around, I think. But it, it just happened at that time when the siren went, and that's a, a bad time in a game because the umpire loses control. He can't just bounce the ball and get them to play again. 
and as the players were going off and the they they were intermingling because the races were beside each other and the the um the committee people were coming out as well and so they were all in in there together and, and a brawl broke out i don't know who started the, the started the punch but um it it uh, it was a probably one of the biggest um, most publicized brawls that have actually happened in football to my knowledge mm. and um because it was committee people as well as players, there were a lot of reports made, and, and unfortunately, it went outside the game. There was one of the people that were involved had civil proceedings against one of the other people because he reckoned he'd been king hit. Anyway, um, John Winnicky, who was uh, he was the chair at the time, and fortunately he was because of his legal background, he was able to because it was a bit contentious given that it, it was outside the game that it was being heard outside the game as well as by the tribunal anyway we started at 5 and we finished at 2 o'clock in the morning after we sorted it all because there were so many people involved mm. but the thing that came out of it was um, Wale Roberts who, who um, you remember the name Wale yes. Roberts he came up before the tribunal and John Winnicky said to him, now, player Roberts, um, could you give your account of the of the incident, please? And um, while Roberts sort of scratched his head and he said, look, um, uh, Mr. Winnicky, um, I don't think I can be much help. He said, I can remember running in and then he said, I got this tremendous whack in the side of the head. And he said, you know, I reckon I got kicked by the copper's horse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds like the whale. <laughs> oh, yes. One of the most famous incidents in football history. I think Graham Richmond, the legendary administrator, I think he finished up being out cold that day as well. It was uh, it was pretty ugly. It was ugly. It was very ugly. Yeah. John, we've come to the end of our time, come to the end of our chat. What a privilege it's been to get your recollections of a different era in football, some of those things that happened all those years ago. But I think most people say that a champion in one era would be a champion in any era, and you were certainly a champion in yours. It's been a privilege to chat to you. Thank you, Peter. Gentlemen, John Schultz joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. What uh, a pleasure it's been to chat to one of the greats of the game. We'll be back to talk sport to another great of Australian sport. Same time next week. Join us then. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au. Predict Australia's score with a crystal ball. And it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.